Welcome to the final episode of Season 3 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm so thankful for all of the downloads, shares, comments and reviews. And I'm still amazed that the discussions that I have with these incredible individuals can be broadcast right into your ears. Today's episode of the Art of Teaching podcast is with another incredible educator, Andrea Stringer. Andrea was introduced to me by Professor Pazi Solberg after a keynote that he gave at the Sydney Opera House, and I'm so grateful for that introduction. Andrea's work experience has incorporated coaching leaders and educators and designing and supporting educators' professional learning. Andrea is a doctoral student at the University of New South Wales and Gonski Institute, and her research area is on professional growth of early career teachers and the impact of coaching. I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Andrea. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you? Uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. Lovely, lovely. And what is the view outside your window at the moment? It is rainy, cloudy, and we're in lockdown at the moment. We are, so. we are in lockdown. I am also calling from Sydney and it's, uh, I don't think we're used to this. I know our Melbourne cousins have been through it for a long time, but it does seem quite foreign uh, for Sydney siders. How are you? Uh, how are you holding up? Oh, I'm doing fine. I think um, working from home has pr- provided opportunities that um, no one thought of before. <laughs> Yeah. So um, it's working for me. Having more people at home in that in the workspace is a little bit more difficult. I'm lucky my year 12 daughter is on holidays because if she had schoolwork, it'd be a little bit more yeah. difficult. Yeah. Wow. Um, probably the most important question for the interview. Uh, what is your coffee order for when I can finally buy your coffee and lunch? Well, funnily enough, I don't drink coffee. You are I'm, the first person that I have interviewed that doesn't drink coffee. Wow, that's incredible. Please, I, I'm fascinated. How, uh, how why? Um, I think because I lived near the Bushels Coffee when I was pregnant and I had morning sickness and the smell just made me not feel well while I was pregnant. And then we moved to Seattle and I still, I just can't, can't. Um, wow. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm genuinely amazed. How on earth do you get through the day and cope with its complexities? Do you sleep well? Do you do you herbal tea? Like what oh, are, Pepsi Max. I'm a Pepsi Max person. So while I have my green tea and I'll have probably two pots of green tea a day, wow. I do have Pepsi Max, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Or Coke Zero. I'm, I'm pretty lenient in that one. Everyone has something that gets them through the day. I get it. Yeah. Um, what item is still on your bucket list? Oh, I think I would really like to do the hot air ballooning um, in Tanzania or somewhere. Wow. So I can take a, a bird's eye view of the animals. That's something I've, I've always wanted to do. Wow. And uh, what is the best advice you have ever received? Oh, I was really thinking about this because um, a lot of people have, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants and always respect those who've come before. So that humility is something that's really uh, resonated with me when I was given that advice. Um, make sure you recognise those that have helped you along the way. Yeah. Because it's, you know, you might be feel like you're climbing, but to fall can happen 
quite quickly. So always be re be recognizing those who help you along the way. Wow. And is that something that you have uh, tried to do for other people? Oh, I try. That's yeah. that's what I try to do. Um, yeah. yeah. Always supporting others, I think, is really important. Fantastic. And what is um what's one of your favorite books or books that's had a really big impact in your life? I think Brené Brown's Dare to Lead um, really resonated because I could pull things from my own experience. So when I read a book, it's always how it relates to my life and what have I experienced and what have I yet to experience. Yeah. The other one was Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, which I've recently read. I'm in a women's um, book reading club, a global book reading club. Yeah. There's four of us from around the world and we pick a book and every two months we come together. So it makes me read outside of my my research so that's that's a good thing but I still feel a little bit of pressure to get a book read in two months wow that's um that's really do you think it's important to uh be investigating things outside of your immediate area of expertise um does it help broaden your perspective or um why do you think that's important I think um, I used to on the holidays while I was at a classroom teacher always try and read a book, but I'm one of those people who have to read for like about eight hours straight. Okay. I can't pick up and put down, pick up and put down. So I'm very much a person who, you know, two days a week I spend on my research. I can't just do an hour, which I, I've been told I'm going to have to at some point. But for me to be productive, it's better for me to have blocks of time. And that's the yeah. same with my reading. So I definitely think it's good to look outside of your your work to find other things and have other interests but um yeah. to me education was my other interest um so i i just absorbed and i just wanted to learn more and more about education so and i feel it's not one narrow thing you know um i went to ICSI in singapore and that opened up a whole new chapter in my life about wow. other people who are academics and you know research so yeah. And just for people that are not aware of what ICSI is. Um, uh, International Congress of Schools um, Effectiveness and Improvement. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that sounds like that was a really uh, transformative time for you. Like it seems Oh, like it was. Yeah. And I went to Morocco in 2020. So um, got to meet people. And it's amazing. You can be sitting at a table having lunch and the people around you some people you reference in your work so it's just to be able to have that conversation with them in an informal way wow. is amazing yeah. wow um if you could have a dinner party with anybody obviously excluding a family i mean they get an invitation uh okay but, uh who who would be there who would you like to sit down with and have dinner with um, I think Michelle Obama, I'd like to just speak she has to come up a lot. Yeah, yeah, just for her strength and her story. And um, then I know this is going to sound a little bit out there, but Julie Andrews, because hey. the sound of music was something I grew up with. And then Amazing. she became a writer. And I think she's gone through so many generations of change. So just understanding how what happened years ago and how things have changed. Wow. And that's yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I would find her very interesting. And Elvis Presley is another person. I, as a child, I listened to a lot of Elvis. So and, and my children now have the fortune of listening to him along the way as well. So what is, uh, what's something that you find particularly fascinating about Elvis or his music? Just his, well, his music was so new and inspiring for a lot of people. So that change, the way In it just many ways, turned. controversial. Yeah. Well, like it really did go against the, the grain. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So um, I think maybe that's the reason why I like 
wow. like his, his music and him yeah so interesting. and it was interesting that he wanted to be in movies and that was what he really strived to do but everyone saw him as a musician first I think wow that's really interesting I always find it fascinating um that question is really interesting because it um I think it says so much about um it, it says so much about the person that's being interviewed. I think it's really interesting to see the variety of, of, of people that they would invite uh, to a dinner party. That would be a wonderful dinner party. I'd love to uh, somehow score an invite. Um, <laughs> so, um, oh, the more the merrier, Matthew. I, that's who I, I'd just invite people who'd like to come along as well. Great. That sounds fascinating. Um, so, Andrea, if um, someone was to ask you, what do you do? Um, how do you respond to that? Um, for those that are not aware, you're currently doing your um, doctorate with the incredible um, Parsi Sorberg, which is a, it's almost a whole podcast in itself. But how would you explain to somebody if they asked you, what, what do you do? I would say first I'm an educator, yeah. teacher. Um, I didn't go to university until I was 30. Um, had a previous career in hairdressing and um, fitness instructor and fitness leader. So I did that as well. Um, but I think education, teaching, and now I'm working in the, the area of coaching. So it's coaching teachers to support other people, build the capacity of others. Wow. So that's it, probably what I'd say. Um, uh, just bef before we move on, uh, why did you make a shift from being a hairdresser to a teacher? I mean, it seems like a, it doesn't seem like a, and also fitness instructor, it doesn't seem like a natural progression into education. Why, why did you... Uh, why did you choose that? Or well, I think um, <laughs> I got an opportunity to have an apprenticeship and my parents thought that was a great thing to have a trade. In my family, trades were the thing you can always fall back on. And so, you know, I finished school on the Friday and started my apprenticeship on the Monday, um, started at the age of 15. So I was working at that time. Wow, that's quite young to be... Um, to be know, working, yeah. yeah. So four-year apprenticeship then. Um, it's different all around the world, but I know that now. But um, four-year apprenticeship and then I started doing some fitness and instructing while I was had my own salon, so I did that as well. Um, but when I went and did my course, um, I was getting good grades and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm actually mm -hmm. doing okay. Um, and then I said to my husband, I'd always love to teach. And part of my um, working with a large company, I used to do a little bit of training. And so then I went and did the hairdressing training to become a teacher at TAFE. But I never ended up doing that because my father passed away just after I finished. And then we ended up um, moving overseas and I, I did hairdressing overseas in Canada. And then when I was around about 28, 29, I said to my husband, I've always wanted to teach. I always wanted to be a teacher. And he said, well, go and do it. And I said, oh, I don't think I'm smart enough. So it was his support and said, yes, you can do this. I know you. So I went and um, sat all the exams um, up in Queensland, actually. And because I did an apprenticeship, it gave me so many points. And I applied and I got in. And I remember waiting up till 12 o'clock at night just to see if I got into the, to the um, university at ACU. And... Wow. You know, amazingly, I got in that year. If I waited another year, I wouldn't have got in with my with my marks. So, um, yeah, and then I stayed. I've been at university for a long time now, Matthew, but I've done a, quite a few things there. So fantastic! It, it, I always find it fascinating how people got to the position that they were at now, and it's and it's a thing, especially in education. It's all really varied. I, I was um, speaking to Professor John Hattie yesterday and he said that he uh, was a, a failed wallpaper apprentice and then became a teacher and Professor Yong Zhao was saying that he was um, 
he found out that he wasn't very good at being a, a, a Chinese farmer in his words and so then became a teacher and and I'm not saying you weren't successful as a hairdresser, but it's fascinating to um, it's fascinating to see people's journeys to the point that they are now. And do you think that has do you think that has served or that has served you well in education? Um, do you think that experience was important to you? Yeah, I do because um, while I did my apprenticeship, then I managed salons, and then I had my own business. Uh, what I did find in my business if um, somebody was having a bad day I'd give them a free blow dry or I'd do their hair if they couldn't afford this week so I found that as a business owner that's not such a great thing to do sometimes but yeah. I do feel a lot of a lot learned a lot of um, things along the way and what it came down to is where I was interested in was supporting others training others and teaching others um, the experiences I had so in a way while I was doing some training in the hairdressing and I you know did competitions and things like that as teams it it was always about working collaboratively with others mm. and um yeah I think that's sort of been the thread through it is, is supporting others through training and teaching and, and learning and unlocking other people's potential I think that's a big thing fantastic so um moving forward a little bit what are you currently researching um I'm looking at the role of coaching early career teachers for professional growth fascinating yeah. And, and that all started from, um, I was in Washington State, we were transferred yeah. um, to Washington and I went through, I did my practicums over there and I became a qualified teacher in Washington State. I sat a, I think it was a six hour exam on social studies and maths and everything. And um, then about two weeks later, we were transferred to San Francisco. So then when I got there, they said, well, you're Washington credential does not work down here it doesn't transfer so you have to go through the accreditation process and it takes two years Gosh. but one of the great things about that experience because I always try and find the best like I've lived in different parts of the world and everyone says what do you which place would you say is the best place to live or what's been the best place to work I always look at what learning did I have and what was the best thing about that place yeah. Um, yeah. and so the best thing about going through that um, the bits are it was the beginning teacher's um, support and assessment accreditation process was having a coach for two years so we met every week or every fortnight for half an hour to an hour and she supported me through that whole accreditation process which meant yes we're, we're doing something that was mandated that you had to do but I built a relationship and she supported me in my teaching she wanted the best out of me and that to me is something I'll always treasure and we're still friends today. So I lucked out and I got a, a wonderful mentor coach. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you, uh, for those people that are not aware, uh, you uh, do, sorry, record videos um, in a series called Connect the Docs, which is a, a fascinating series. I spent um, a little bit uh, too much time last night watching all of your videos. Um, so I'm sounding a bit rough this morning. Um, and in, these, in a recent uh, chat with Professor Parsi Solberg, um, you asked him what were his best hopes in conducting his research? And I wonder what your best hopes are for conducting your current research. What would you like to be the impact um, of your research? Well, I'm under no illusion that it will change the world. I do know that. It'll just be a small um, contribution, I'm hoping, to education yep. and coaching. And I'm just thinking, um, I had such a great experience of being coached. I've gone through the accreditation process in multiple countries and, and states. Um, and I just think we need to support our teachers. And I'm, and I'm thinking 
with that coaching is that the support that can support the early career teachers because we are losing so many early career teachers and even if we start with the early career teachers and they're very familiar with what coaching is and what coaching isn't then they might just continue that journey throughout yeah yeah absolutely I think that's that's really fascinating. It sounds like such a meaningful research project, and um, I, I wouldn't say it's to many people, but I would be very interested in reading your uh, your research once it's done. Um, it, it does sound absolutely fascinating, and um, I mean, you talk so much about uh, teacher professional learning, um, and why do you think that um, teacher professional learning needs to be personalised, and how can we how can we do that better? I know in Australia. For those people that are listening in Australia, we have the Australian professional standards, which professional learning should be aligned to. I'm assuming that there's something similar um, in your context in the States, but why do we need to, why do we need to personalize it? I mean, we talk a lot about personalization of learning with children, but we don't seem to talk about it as much with, with, with bigger kids such as ourselves. Um, yeah, I think that's a very long question. My apologies. No, that's, that's fine. I think the first thing I always go back to um, DC and Ryan's self-determination theory. Yeah. So to be intrinsically motivated, to, to grow professionally and be intrinsically motivated so it comes from within, you need those psychological needs of autonomy or choice, um, competence. So I believe that I can do it. Plus also the coach who's working with me can believe I can do it. I think that's really important. Yeah. And the last one is that relatedness, feeling like you really belong belong to your work, your community, your school, or even the relationship you're working with that you two come together and you, you feel like they care about you as much as you care about the, the relationship. Yeah. So yeah. that's one thing to be having those, those three psychological needs met, you're more um, inclined to achieve your goal. Yeah. So are we allowing the teachers to be professionally responsible for their goals that really matter to them? Yeah. The other part, I was thinking of the best professional learning experience I've had because I asked that when I train um, in coaching, uh, you know, what has been the best professional learning experience? And I remember I had a, my first principal was an amazing principal who I'm still friends on Facebook with today. Um, she asked me, where do you want to be in five years from now and how can I help you get there? Such an important question. So she was thinking about me. It, the focus was not about student outcomes or the school or your colleagues. It was just, what are you wanting to achieve and how can I help you? So when you have people you work with like that, you go above and beyond for those people because you know that they really care for you and that they're wanting the best for you. So that always resonated with me. And she would meet with me every so often, probably once every two months and say, what are you looking at? Um, what are you um, researching? Because that was just me. I was always reading and finding out things. And I said, oh, look, I, actually, there's a workshop I'd love to go. And you go and do the workshop and you take a team with you. And then you go back to your school and implement it. And then you go back to the workshop. And I found that was really effective because as a cohort, we all went to the workshop. We came back, we distributed all that, that learning throughout the staff and within our classrooms. And then we got to come back and really reflect and talk about it and have a discussion with other people from other schools. So I found that really worthwhile because it made it contextual. So this school embedded professional learning to me um, has a lot of benefits and there's a lot of untapped resources within our school that I feel we're so busy with everything else teachers are doing, mm. so busy that we don't get the opportunity to watch other teachers. Yeah. So when I was a professional learning coach in a K-12 school, I was so fortunate to get into other classrooms because I got to see, you know, a year nine French class and how they use technology in that situation and that context. 
So then I, I built my skills and my knowledge by watching others. And I, I just think that's something, unfortunately, is not planned in a timetable these days for teachers. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important question. Um, uh, where do you want to be in five years and how can I help you get there? And I think it takes a, a really secure leader to say that um, because as opposed to um, fitting people into boxes or needs that you have, you're actually... Um, letting them go and, and trying to um, build them into better educators than you are. I think that's such a powerful question. And I think it's, um, like I said, it takes a very secure leader to say that. That's, that's, that's wonderful. And it's, it's interesting that you're still talking about that experience uh, that you had with your principal many years later. So that must have really had an impact on the... I think you know. it did. And I think that's what I try and help other people with as well. And with her, I remember she sat down, she said, you know what, one, I can see you being a doctor one day. I can see you being Dr. String. And I went, oh, that's so, there's no way, you know, I couldn't see that for myself back then. You know, this is 12 years ago, so I couldn't see that. And the deputy principal said to me, I can see you working with teachers. Wow. That's what I, and I couldn't see that at the time, but they could see something in me. So wow. that's something I feel like you need to name and recognise other people's strengths because then you're building on their strengths. And I think if we name and recognise, because we, we live in such a deficit, everybody's like, what do you need to fix? How can you improve? What, what do you yeah, need to yeah. get better at? Why don't we spend some time saying, well, I've, I've heard this is a real strength of yours. You know, can we tap into that a little bit more? It, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because it seems like that seems like a, a great quality of what teachers do with their students is actually asking them, how can I help you? How can I support you? What do you need to improve that personalization and that scaffolding of, of learning? It's, um, it's a shame that that's not carried more um, into the professional learning context. And it seems so wonderful that you are, that you are doing that and starting to ask those questions because essentially we are just older kids. And so we still require that personalization. We still require that connection with our teacher or our supervisor, um, which is um, yeah, really interesting. It seems like such a fascinating space that you are um, moving into. And I thank you for your um, commitment to that um, and having those conversations, which I think are really, really, really important. Um, what do you think, and we touched on this a little bit, what do you think are some of the, um, uh, misconceptions about coaching and also what are some of the qualities of great coaches yeah well as I said I lived and worked in the U.S. for 10 years um, and I had the experience of what a coaching situation was where you really have that respect by the person who's coaching you so the coach really respects and it's an equal partnership I think of Jim Knight's partnership principles and I think of um the, the coaching way of being based on Carl Rogers' work, the way of being, really having that relationship with someone is, is really important. So, sorry, Matt, can you go back to that question again? Yeah, no problem. So I was just frantically writing down some things that you're talking about. But what are some of the qualities of, a, of an effective coach and what are maybe some oh, okay. of the, the misconceptions of coaching? Okay, so the misconceptions of coaching, I feel like, there's this continuum um, where you can be more directive, which is more about the supervision. Like if you're quite directive in your approach and just telling people what they need to do, that's more of a supervisory role. And then you've got the other part where you might be a mentor, where you're drawing on your expertise and you're giving advice, you're sharing your knowledge. Yeah. But it's more about the way in which you share that. 
Whereas coaching is about having them in the driver's seat and it's, it's, there's different types of coaching. So you've got um, the really facilitative coaching where the coachee drives the goal. They take um, ownership of their actions and they come up with their, their actions to move forward. Whereas in a dialogical coaching, you can provide, um, share your expertise when it's needed. Yeah. So you can draw on your expertise. We're not saying don't draw on your expertise, but are we always first to default and share our expertise really quickly because time's so poor? Is it yeah. just better if I tell you what to do than actually ask you, you some questions that might get you to where you want to go? Yeah. Do you think um, uh, being a good listener is really important? Some of those. Oh, definitely. There's four skills in coaching. So it's listening to promote thinking. Yeah right? Asking powerful questions and then paraphrasing and summarizing so that you're both on the same page and you're showing that you're authentically listening, right? Yeah. And then you've got that noticing. What do you notice about the person you're coaching? What do you notice about yourself? Are you always quick? Is your, in your head, are you always thinking, you're already thinking, oh, I know the solution for your problem. Matt, if I could just tell you what you need, this will, I'll help you. Because we do want to help people that, you know, that's something the teachers are always doing is helping. But when you're helping all the time and rescuing people, are you actually building their capacity or are you always just having a short term fix? So I think, you know, if sometimes we're not, I don't think you should be coaching. Every conversation should be a coaching conversation. But can you stay more curious for a little bit longer without giving them the answer that you think that they need? Yeah. Are you suggesting that? um coaches kind of have a tool belt and they have different strategies and skills to use depending on the um uh the circumstances or depending on the individual or you're saying it needs to be more of a a personalized approach um yeah well with the facilitative coaching you don't need to be the expert so that was one thing when um i was a pedagogical coach people in the middle and high school sort of thought well you're primary trained how can you help me, you know, in, in teaching physics or whatever? So it was really important to understand that I don't need to be the expert in your area, but I do need to be a good coach. I need to be an effective coach. So in that you've got, um, I'm very familiar and I work for Growth Coaching International and we use the growth framework, which is a conversational framework. So it's about how to get from your goal. What are we looking at realities? What are the options that you have? What will you do? And then when and how will you do it? That's the most important part because everyone wants to do something. They want to improve. They have a goal, but it's really getting down to when and how will you do it? And then how can you make that a habit? How can we embed that in your practice all the time? So that's that growth framework that you can use to have conversations. And then there's those four skills that I talked about. But then there's also the coaching way of being, which is what's it like to be on the other side of you when you have these conversations? And How do you show up to these conversations? So that's definitely about the emotional intelligence. It seems like um, self-awareness is such an important part of that. Like how, sort of putting, like as a person who's receiving a coach, I feel like this is a coaching session, so thank you very much. Um, As uh, (laughs) someone who is receiving the coaching session, like actually putting a lens up to your own practice, but not just the theoretical side of it, but also the emotional side of it. How do you... Uh, relate with others how do you come across how yeah really really important I think there needs to be so much more of that um, these days Um, but what are your thoughts on that about some of those soft skills that you help to develop because obviously pedagogically uh, you can have all of the knowledge in the world um, but 
you may not be able to connect with people on a on a more personal level. So how important are both of those skills and how do you um, how do you build some of those softer skills? Well, so the, the two outcomes of coaching we're wanting is that self-awareness, yeah. right? So once they become self-aware, then they can take responsibility. So I love the word professional responsibility because sometimes when I hear accountability, yeah. it always sounds to me like you're, you're, it's from with outside, mm-hmm. right? But professional responsibility to me means you take ownership of, of the work that you need to do. So yeah. I was just thinking when you said that, um, I think that's why I also think teachers, you know, that they talk about we want to have a certain um, ATAR to get into the profession. But when I look at myself, it's, a, it's the passion, it's working with children, it's working with others, it's, it's those soft skills that actually get you over the line. Mm. I know that they say that your IQ gets you the position, but your EQ gets you the promotions because it's about working with others. So I see that the same with teaching um, and the same as coaching. So, yeah. you, you, you know, having those emotional skills, that emotional awareness as well on your, as yourself and what do you notice about the other person? Yeah. I would say it's the hardest of um, part of coaching to develop, but I have seen in the last 10 years how much I have developed myself. What do I notice about myself? I'm more reflective. And that's the funny thing about teaching in the standards. I look for the word reflective. And if we say it's such a great thing, if we say, you know, being a reflective practitioner is what we're needing from all teachers, where is it allocated any time in the day for mm. teachers? Yeah. You know, having a conversation. I know when I read a book, I need to debrief with somebody, bounce ideas off each other. Um, that to me is a, a part of reflective practice. Yeah. So I think if we if we really valued reflection, which to me helps you move forward, it should be something that we really value and put it in our, our school day. Yeah, really, really important. And there's so many so much we could talk about with that in terms of how um, uh, what are some of those skills that people need to enter the profession how do you assess those skills how do you um, uh, how do you build that capacity and I think it's such a it's such a fascinating area that induction of especially new teachers um, is 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 so important but it would be um, a miss of me to ask you um, what your experience was like in the states because I know you spent a fair bit of time over there um, uh, you uh, obviously were accredited there, um, but also um, what are some of the, the courses that you're involved with over there, over there and how did that impact um, your teaching and learning now? Yeah, um, I went to a university as part of the BITSA program, you do some other courses where they brought it in um, to support you through your accreditation process. That was great because we were all part of a cohort and we were all beginning teachers, so that worked really well. I did a lot of professional development over there. Um, Schools really support that. Um, I was fortunate in California. I worked um, at a a pre-K-12 independent school. Um, I had a lot of autonomy. I came there with a four-year undergraduate degree in education, so um, it's a very different, they do an arts degree and then they go on and do teaching. Whereas we do, I did four years full-time of undergraduate teaching. So a lot of people said, oh, you've got so much knowledge. How, where did you learn all this? And it was part of our course, mm-hmm. right? So I was very fortunate in that way. But it was interesting as a teacher, if I was still in my classroom at 4.30, parents would go past and go, Mrs. Stringham, you should be at home. It was really interesting that um, 
the value, like we had Teachers Education Day where they appreciated you and we had a lunch provided and we had a masseuse come in and give us a back massage and they, the parents really valued teachers. And I'm not saying this is a generalisation either. Mm. This was just at my school. But I really felt valued as a teacher and um, they were saying to me, go home. You know, you've got a family as well. So um, when I came back to Australia, it was a little bit different because, you know, we had a lot of admin work as in your lesson plans and everything sort of had to be annotated and um, it just felt a little bit more constricted for me as a teacher that I had to sort of more follow and tick boxes I suppose. Mm. And you did a, um, a course called the Art of Leadership course over in the States. Um, yeah really I was really to hear what that was like. Yeah I was really fortunate I applied um, to the Art of Leadership at Harvard which is a week-long seven-day course and I was just amazed that I got in but I have to say I put it out on Twitter and said has anybody done this course what are you thinking of? And I had a friend who turned out to be, became friends, um, supported me in my application. Wow. And when I got in, yeah, because he'd done it, I think, the year or two before. So um, just the most amazing experience for me. Um, yeah, uh, that whole bonding as a team. You know, we did the high ropes and we spent a day together and wow. uh, still in connection with a lot of the people from the course. But what I learned there from a coaching perspective and working with um, teachers was, you know, they said, watch this video. How long do you need to watch a video to help support a teacher? And they said, no, you know, let us know. It's a, it's a long video, but let us know when you feel you have, can have a conversation to the, to the teacher about their, their um, practice. And within seven minutes, everybody's hand was up. So we're thinking, why are you spending so much time observing a teacher for 45 minutes when within, you know, seven, 10 minutes, you can look at, you know, you can look at their practice and have a reflecting coaching conversation about the practice. So to me, I'm thinking, you know, we get, we get told what would be the best practice, but we have to contextualise it. We have to say, well, do we have 45 minutes to do an observation? Can we work just with 10 minutes? What are you actually going into the classroom for? What is the purpose? So when it comes to um, observations, I know, you know, we, we use it for compliance or, we, you know, people need to go in, but how can we use it for professional development and professional growth? And how can we make it more organic within the school? Yeah. Do you think that um, uh, coaching in a school context is different to other types of coaching? Like as schools, for me, um, schools seem to be these really unique and incredibly complicated contexts. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Are there some similarities or do you think that um, do schools require a specific type of coach? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask you. Well, that's part of my research, Matthew, so I'll tell you in a couple right. of years. Um, so I'm looking at four different schools um, across New South Wales. We're looking at um, all sectors and both primary and secondary. And what I'm trying to find out is what is the purpose of coaching? Why are they bringing coaching into the school? Because I think that's really important. Um, you know, you've got all these things that become very popular and people go, oh, it's a new thing, let's try it. But it's really about what is the purpose? So what is the purpose of coaching in your context? So you've got instructional coaching, which is always about student outcomes. So it's always about what's going on in the classroom and what's going on in, in the pedagogy. Then you've got the facilitative coaching, which, um, and as a pedagogical coach, I went between the two. I was sometimes in the classroom modeling lessons, looking at um, data with the teacher, 
So I was more of that instructional coach, but I was also the facilitative coach where they might have been the head of the department and want to work on how to create a more collaborative environment within my team. So it depends on what the purpose is. So I found I was on that continuum and sliding backwards and forwards, depending on the person I was coaching. If they needed more support in um, teaching and, and going, I would go and do a model lesson for them and we would look at things together, look at the data, look at different strategies we could use. I very much had a partnership approach with that. Yeah. But getting into the classroom is another thing is about if they think that, um, if a teacher thinks that you're going to share what goes on in the classroom or share what their goal is or share any of their vulnerabilities, they won't open up to you. But if they feel they have a trusting relationship and say, oh, you know what, Andrea, I'm really, I really want to get better at my questioning because I don't think I'm really hitting those open questions. I, they wouldn't tell me that if they thought I was going to report that to the principal or their head of the department. I mean, it's got to be a relationship that's really trusting for yeah. them to open up about their practice. That's my yeah. belief. Yeah, really, really interesting. And I think um, that trust is is super, super important. And how do you think, sorry, how important do you think uh, psychological safety is in schools? And what can we do um, uh, to build that more into school systems? Because like, like you're saying, like I think that it doesn't, um, uh, I think if you don't have that trust and that connection with staff, people are just not going to listen to you. So. Do you think psychological safety is important and, and, and how do we build more of that? Uh, it's, it's one of the number one things I'd say because first they have to trust the process. Yeah. So being really clear about what coaching is and what coaching isn't, right? So some people will say, oh, I'm coaching them on this because I think they need it. Well, if you're coaching them on something that you have an agenda for or you think that they need, that's not coaching, right? That's you performance managing really or you're supervising them because you have an agenda of what you think that they need. But in coaching, it's definitely about what they think that they need to work forward. And it could be based on data, it could be based on evidence, could be based on an observation. What do they think they need to move forward? So that psychological safety has to be there. The hard part is how do you create that? So this is about the culture, right? The, the school environment in which, they look, in, in which they are. So that's part of my research as well is... is does coaching create that culture or does the culture need to be established before coaching comes in? I mean, that's, that's a PhD in itself, but I'm sort of very interested in that space yeah. as well. And I've seen coaching being mandated that you must have a coach and then they sign the coach. To me, that loses that. Um, I, I have found being optional has worked really well because you get the people who really want it. And if you get those people who really want it, then they go and talk. They share their practice. They share with other people what they, you know, the benefits of coaching. And I think um, it's better to have heard it from other people than to be told this is what you're going to be doing. It's really interesting. I've I just started reading um, uh, Amy C. Edmondson's book, um, The Fearless Organisation, and it yes. talks a lot about, um, from what I can um, uh what I can say in the first couple of chapters, at least, it talks a lot about uh, the role of psychological safety and building that trust. And um, I think that's really hard because it's, it's, it's hard to kind of measure that and measure your success with building trust. I mean, outcomes and student marks and accreditation and all that stuff, there's a, there's a more concrete measure of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do, you, how do you even gauge that in an organisation? How do you even begin to... Um, uh, measure that trust because obviously somebody going in for a limited time as a coach 
um, may not be someone who's necessarily um, uh, a part of that culture. So how do you even begin to determine some of those things? I think trust, it's really hard to describe or measure, but you yeah. know it when it's absent. You feel it, yeah. You feel it, right? Absolutely. So you know that when it's absent. Trust happens in small moments. So if I said I was going to meet you at nine o'clock, I will meet you at nine o'clock. I, I follow through. If I say I'm going to find a resource for you. So I'm building that with trust over just small moments. So when I found in the primary school is the people knew me. So people who requested coaching had already known me quite well so that they trusted me that I wouldn't repeat what we have our conversations for. In some schools, you have contracts for coaching that says, you know, what we discuss will only be between you and I. Some schools have it that, you know, would you like me to share it with your line manager, with your head of department? Would you like me to share the successes with my with your principal? So that was one thing I always said um, in my emails. I didn't have a contract, but we had an email that said, whatever we talk about is between you and I, so that they had that level of, um, they knew that it was safe to share anything with me. Um, yeah. But that takes time. And if I was always thinking, you know, do not you... Not just one session. Yeah. It's not one session. And sometimes it might take just one... 50 minute, one hour session just to get to know somebody so yeah. they, they understand what the process is. Yeah. 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 Really. It, it, it's really, um, really, really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating, um, a fascinating area of research. And um, you're obviously uh, doing a doctorate through the University of New South Wales, the Gonski, Gonski Institute. Um, mm -hmm. I can see that you're wearing your UNSW uh, top or your daughter's top um no she bought it for me thank okay. you yes, we're both we were both at the same the university at the same time so great um, and <laughs> so you're obviously being uh, supervised by the amazing um professor Parsi Solberg what has that experience been like and and why the University of New South Wales and also apart from him being incredible why choosing uh professor uh, Solberg to uh, to supervise your work it's interesting you say I chose him. No, they, they chose us. So that That's was great. interesting. Yeah. This is my second time around. So I want to share that with people because I started a PhD at another university and did one year and did four subjects and just didn't feel like um, my second supervisor had felt that I was struggling a little bit with what I was wanting to do. And she said, maybe you need somebody who's, who understands what you're wanting, what you're wanting to achieve. Um, and so I applied to another university and I didn't get in. I thought, oh, I'm just going to give it away. And then I looked at other things and I looked at a scholarship. Um, I looked at trying to do all these different projects because I wanted to continually challenge myself and learn. That was just something I wanted to do. Um, and then when I saw this Gonski Institute come up, I thought everything I'm thinking of doing, I could actually incorporate in an application. Amazing. So it was definitely something. And we were the first cohort through, which was wonderful. And to be chosen is another thing. And um, a lot of people I've spoken to on the Connect the Dots say the hardest part is actually applying and pushing yourself into that unknown territory, right? So you're out of your comfort zone. Um, so, yeah, and... Uh, we, we were allocated the supervisors who best fit the topic, I think. Right. Well, that's, yeah. uh, that's an achievement in itself. He, well, yes, he, I didn't know that. Parsi, yeah, but Parsi did his, his doctoral work in supporting teachers. So wow. through the coaching. So, yeah, unless you speak Finnish, you can't read his book. <laughs> unless you read well, it, can read I, it. I, um, I, I've had the privilege of speaking with Parsi a, a number of times and even more recently meeting him at... Um, an event at the Opera House. Um, mm -hmm. I was a little, 
little starstruck, but he's just the kindest, most generous person at the time is his kids were there going crazy and he was just trying to be a dad and juggle and it was it was really lovely to see and I think the um his generosity um continues to astound me and his work's fascinating I remember sitting in a, a in a conference it wasn't an education conference but reading his uh, book finish lessons 2.0 and mm-hmm. just I actually missed a couple of sessions because I was so engrossed in his work and I just remember thinking like this is why I wanted to get into teaching. Like it just, it just makes sense. And I actually had a moment where I was quite emotional. And I think people must have thought I was having a breakdown while reading a book about finished lessons. But it was really, um, it was really reassuring for me to go, okay, like this, this is possible. Like it's possible to to um, uh, to do really great, meaningful work as an educator. And then I was at the time just struggling with some of the complexities of my job and, and his work uh, really um, yeah really spoke to me and it's very philosophical but it's a it's a wonderful opportunity for yourself to get to um, to work with someone like that and also for him to work with someone who is um, asking some incredible questions in education so he's a yeah it seems like a great partnership it's a good match yes yeah and it, the humility is definitely so humble so yeah he's so 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 humble um, and uh, always so so generous with his time. I remember um, sending him an email a number of years ago, and and him saying yes to chat to me. I thought it was um, I thought it was a mistake, but um, yeah, it it's was- amazing. I think educators, as I've learned throughout the years, um, whether I was doing Twitter chats for SatChat or even um, uh, EduCoach um, OC, you know, I've been on a few Twitter chats asking people. I only ever got one. Um, person saying no to me but then followed up later on and did all this amazing stuff so very generous educators yeah. are yeah. yeah really really interesting um i just wanted to ask you a couple of questions um just about the current um uh, coaching climate and education with um with obviously the ongoing covid19 pandemic mm-hmm. um do you think that this is a new normal and is there even more um necessity now for teachers to be resilient self-reflective um and um yeah what what are your thoughts on that yeah i i think teachers um well as the as i'm listening and watching things on twitter because that that's what i keep um my finger on the pulse is what people are saying and how they're feeling and i know some people will say it's an echo chamber but there's only a point where teachers can do so much you know they are they work beyond above and beyond the hours um and i think we need to take some of that teaching face-to-face. We need, they want to be reflective practitioners. They want to work more collaboratively. Uh, why aren't we listening to them? I think that's one of the things. One of my concerns is um, with coaching, when you become a coach, what training do you have before you become a coach? Mm. So it, are you just a good practitioner? And when I say, are you just, it's not that. A great practitioner does not always make the best leader right? Because it's a different set of skills. The same with a coach, somebody who's working with teachers, do they have those skills? Do they have that way of being? So I've seen a lot of people go, oh, let's pay teachers extra money and they can train and coach other teachers. And I'm thinking, are we thinking about how we're going to develop their skills as a coach? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really important. Um, And I'm not saying that some of the most effective teachers will be wonderful coaches, but are we putting in the training or even thinking about training them in another area? Because I think just relying on their teaching ability would be a 
a concern. Yeah, really, yeah. really, really interesting. Um, what would you say to an audience of new teachers um, about to enter the profession or considering uh, entering the profession? It's funny because my daughter is seriously considering um, high school history and bio teacher. Um, Are you happy with that decision or do you have reservations or, or how do you feel as a, as a mum? I, I did say to her because after I left the classroom, they noticed a difference. They noticed a difference that I was available to them on the weekends. I, you know, we weren't going into every bookshop. They noticed a difference in me, but she's very passionate about her history subjects. Um, and I know that as long as she's happy, um, I do think I'd love to say that I know what a classroom will look like in five or 10 years time. But at this point, I really don't know what it will look like because it's changed so much in the last 10 years. Yeah. So interesting. it will be interesting to see what it's like even when she finishes university. Yeah. Is, it, is it more, you know, is there more compliance? Is there more administration work? Because I think people get into teaching because they love to work with students. And are we taking that away from them and giving them more work in an area that they don't? Yeah. I say get their edgy mojo, right? They're not feeling that passion for admin. Yes, there's some things we have to do, but have we tipped the bar, you know, the balance too far? Do you think, um, do you think passion in itself is enough to um, sustain you in teaching? I don't have an answer to that. I'm just Neither, Matthew, that's a hard one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about very, that because you know people. the pra you know being pragmatic about it. People have um, mortgages, people have children to raise. Do you know um, when that sort of a thing? Um, I know in America the pay wasn't as good as Australia. I will say that, um, but a lot of teachers had extra work. I I got a um, a stipend for doing research over my holidays. So they gave me extra money for me to do research on spelling and, and grammar. So that was the thing the school said, we, we want to improve in this area. Would you mind doing some research? A lot of other people had other jobs over the holidays to support them um, as a teacher. So you definitely have that. But I just think, I don't think it's the money teachers are so concerned about. I do think they would love a pay increase, but I think it's the time and the workload. Mm. Yeah. yeah interesting and I, I don't I don't have an answer to that question either but it's something that I have been um, uh, thinking about is um, I um, I think passion gets you kind of in the door that that desire to uh, to work and make a difference in the lives of young people um, but I'm not sure if that's if that's enough um, but yeah really interesting I think the the landscape of education is changing so fast it is a completely different world to when I graduated um, 13 years ago. Um, I'd love a lot more teachers at the policy table. That's what I'd like. I'd like to, you know, hear a few more voices from the classrooms. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, really interesting discussion, um, Andrea, and I think that it's uh, that's almost enough content for a, a whole nother episode. Um, but um, thank you for the work that you are doing uh, to support building the capacity of educators. It is fascinating, and I, I actually can't wait to to read some of your work. I think it's such an important um, uh, component of our profession. Um, but where, um, where can we find out more about you and where can we stay up, uh, up to date with your work? I mean, you do some work called Connect the Docs, but is there anywhere else that we can 
stay in touch with your research. Stay yeah, the actual, the reason why I had Connect the Docs was I wrote a blog post about how you have that unconscious incompetent when you go into research, thing. right? You really don't know what you're getting into. Um, and then sometimes you come into an area, you think, I have no idea. And I felt I'm fortunate because I have people I can reach out to and I have no problem asking other people for help or advice I've learned that that gets me further than if I am too shy to ask them. So I ask a lot of people questions um, and I thought, well, what happens to those people who don't, who don't have that opportunity? So that's why I, I started Connect the Docs, but it all started from a blog. And I have blogged for quite a few years now, um, less so in my current role as a consultant, managing consultant for GCI, but um, I'm always on Twitter. That's that's my my place. of It feels like my my school environment is on Twitter. Yeah. And very responsive on Twitter, may I add. Uh, you're very quick to uh, to get back to people, and it's really, uh, yep. really lovely yep. to see. I think Twitter is a is a fascinating um, resource. I know that there's been so many incredible people that I've met, um, and conversations have initiated on Twitter. It's really important, I think, to get out of your little little bubble. Um, well, I think it gives you access to so many people that you yeah. would never have thought to contact or yeah. you know, get, get to know them a little bit more on a personal level as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this, for me, this um, uh, podcast project, the, the Art of Teaching, has, um, can only uh, survive, if you like, because of the generosity of um, incredible educators uh, such as yourself. And I, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. Um, I know that there's probably so many other things you could be doing, but my hope is that there are people that are listening to this that, um, that are really impacted and that um, actually start to look at some of the work that you're doing and, and, and follow that quite closely. So uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity too. No Matthew, this is amazing to be on the other side of the, <laughs> the questions. Yeah, it's really, it's really lovely. And um, uh, yeah, I hope that people get a lot of um, uh, uh, great uh, insights out of our discussion and I'll put all of your um, resources and your bio in the show notes. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Um, I don't think you'll be going anywhere because we're in lockdown, but uh, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks a lot. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.